That was that, that okay. Canadian rock band, Resh. There you go. <laughs> Resh, head of a man. Uh, first, top, beginning. Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got a couple of prayer requests. Jackie has, she had pneumonia and she's struggling over it. Um, let's see here. We got some missionaries leaving from the church this week, Saturday, going to an undisclosed country. So we want to keep them in prayer. We've got a couple that are traveling to Israel for three months, so we want to keep them in prayer. We've got uh, other people that are currently traveling, so we want to keep them in prayer. And then we've got uh, Daniel in Ireland. He's a Jewish guy, and there's uh, my friend Enda. He uh, has been trying to witness to him, and so we want to lift him up in prayer. He's totally set on the fact that uh, if you don't follow the law, then you're lost, going to heck. And uh, anyway, uh, I'm just pray that he can meet his Messiah before uh, that day comes. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the things that you can, Jim had a good point years ago, they call themselves the chosen people. Well, all you need to do is ask them, chosen for what? <laughs> there, there has to be a purpose. If you're chosen, there has to be a purpose for being chosen. So uh, maybe that'll get them to think it through. I don't know. Um, let's see here. And then, uh, so we got those prayer requests. And then I got this from... Epaphras in Tanzania. He's pastor over there, and uh, we assist him from time to time. He said, I and the church, our plans to lead missionary trip to visit Tanzania this summer are almost complete. It's going to be a memorable 7 to 14 day adventure starting July 20th with plenty of learning about the church, people, and culture, in addition to the usual game viewing, um, obviously meaning animals, in Tanzania's famous national parks and a visit to fabled Zanzibar. This is the time to register, so if anybody wants to go on this with them, uh, you can register 20th July. They're going to be uh, uh, doing that. So he just passed that on in case anybody's interested, and I can send you more information. And <clears throat> let's see here. Uh, well, we'll go ahead and go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've heard the prayer requests, and there are certainly many others out there that... Uh, are uh, in need of being addressed out of people's hearts and out of people's lives. So we would ask that you would tend to these things that were mentioned a moment ago and any others that are outstanding. And Lord, uh, be glorified in, in uh, your people as you respond to their needs according to your wisdom. And uh, we know that your hand is on all of us for good, even if we think it is bad at times. You have a purpose for those, those things. So uh, help us to understand and to uh, trust and rely on you during our times of affliction and lack and whatever else. Um, we love you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, and then we got today is anybody? Uh, 16, 316. Okay, 316. John. John 316. Okay, <clears throat> okay, 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Okay, that's not in here. I just I didn't think so. Okay, uh, this is the Kingdom of Judah ended badly. The significant battle of the late 600s BC was fought at Carchemish, the modern city of Jerablus, Syria, on the Euphrates River near the border with Turkey. Carchemish had military importance because it guarded the primary ford of the Euphrates. <clears throat> in 612 BC, the Babylonians had destroyed Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Three years later, Egypt marched northward against the Babylonians in an effort to shore up the weakened Assyrians. King Josiah of Judah, preferring a Babylonian presence to that of Egypt and Assyria, tried to stop the Egyptians at Megiddo, but was slain. Then the people anointed his son Jehoahaz and made him king. After ruling only three months, he was imprisoned by Pharaoh Necho. The Pharaoh then placed another of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim, on the throne of Judah and made Judah a vassal state of Egypt. The Egyptian army continued northward to Carchemish, which it garrisoned with its army and the remnant of the Assyrian forces. The year 605 BC was a decisive one in the history of the ancient Near East. Nebuchadnezzar II, crown prince of Babylon, became commander-in-chief of the armies of Babylon. In the spring of 605, he marched to Carchemish and defeated the Egyptians and Assyrians in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. As a result, Babylon took control of Syria and Palestine. From his victory at Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar led his armies to Judah and besieged Jerusalem. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim renounced G Egypt and became a vassal of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took a number of Jewish leaders to Babylon, including Daniel. Jehoiakim, an evil king in God's eyes, remained loyal to Babylon for only three years. So Nebuchadnezzar, now king of Babylon, once again sent his armies to for force Jehoiakim to submit to him. Jehoiakim then remained in subservience to Babylon in his, until his death in 597 BC. Jehoiakim was succeeded by his 18-year-old son Jehoiakim, who also did not follow Jehovah and was as bad as his father, oppressing his own people. So despicable was he that God said through Jeremiah the prophet, who was living in Jerusalem, as surely as I live, says the Lord, I will abandon you. Jehoiakim, I will hand you over to those who seek to kill you, of whom you are so desperately afraid. To Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and the mighty Babylonian army, I will expel you and your mother from this land, and you will die in a foreign country. This prophecy was fulfilled only three months into Jehoiakim's reign on March 16, 597 B.C., when, jo when Nebuchadnezzar, after besieging the city, accepted the surrender of King Jehoiakim, his mother, advisors, nobles, and officials, the king, <coughs> yeah, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, and officials, Nebuchadnezzar took 10,000 people captive to Babylon, including the king. In addition, Nebuchadnezzar carried away all the treasures from the temple and the royal palace. Eleven years later, Nebuchadnezzar would return a final time, destroying the city and temple and taking all but the poorest of the remaining Jews captive to Babylon. 800 years earlier, God had declared, if you refuse to listen to the Lord your God and do not obey all the commands and laws I am giving to you today, all these curses will come upon and will overwhelm you. The Lord will bring a distant nation against you from the end of the earth. Its armies will lay siege to your cities until all the fortified walls in your land, the walls you trusted to protect you, are knocked down. The Lord will scatter you. That's Deuteronomy 28, and they picked out parts of verses 15 through 64. Judah refused to listen to God, and God did 
just what he had promised. Just as God held the nation of Israel accountable for its disobedience, he holds us as individuals accountable for whether or not we will give him our allegiance and obey him. What lessons from Judah's final days can you apply to your life? For God, fear God and obey his commands, for this is the duty of every person. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Okay, as depressing as that sounded, their question is quite appropriate. I'll read it again. Just as God held the nation of Israel accountable for its disobedience, he holds us as individuals accountable for whether or not we give him our allegiance and obey him. Obviously, he's writing to believers because we're reading this as believers. What lessons from Judah's final days can you apply to your life? The lesson you can apply to your life in this is despite your disobedience, God will never forsake you. Okay, Israel remains to this day, despite being exiled, despite having completely rejected the Lord throughout their history. Every turn of the page in the Old Testament shows them turning away from him, and then the next king comes along and brings them back to himself, and then they turn away from him, and finally he's had enough, and he exiles them, and they don't listen, and so they reject his son when he comes, and he exiles them again, and yet Israel remains, and it's a picture of us in our salvation. We continuously turn our backs on the Lord. We think things we shouldn't think. We do things we shouldn't do. And we will be judged for each one of those at the Bema Seat of Christ. And yet, we will be judged at the Bema Seat of Christ. There you go. That's the lesson that I think everybody should try to remember because people that say you can lose your salvation don't know their Bible very well. They don't know what they're talking about. And they are relying on themselves to secure what they've already been given. Thus, their salvation is not of grace, but of works, which means that it may not even be salvation at all, or they may have been saved, and now they're in a very poor state before the Lord, where they're not ever going to be rewarded for anything because they're not living by faith, which is exactly where your rewards come from. So if you believe, I'll look at the camera for this. If you believe you can lose your salvation, you're not receiving any rewards for what you're doing. Okay. Here's just, the thing that a kid tells me about that. You just they, might as well have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like, okay, well, you know, you, you just, it's easy believism. It's like, okay, so you don't put any value at what might or might not be awaiting you in eternity. Absolutely, and it's they like, don't put any value in God's word, which says that right. if you believe, mm-hmm. you are saved. Right. So they're, they are the ones that have the problem. That. That terminology, I said that in a sermon not too long ago, easy believism. That's their their way of uh, attacking us, us <laughs> over something that the Bible clearly teaches. Mm-hmm. Right. Easy believism. It's just a, a what's the word uh, uh, when you throw out something at somebody, uh, ad, ad hominem almost, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Anyway, it's it's very poor thinking, and I feel bad for people that actually hold that view, but... If they're saved, they're saved. But if they're not living by faith because they believe that they are securing their salvation, they will receive no rewards. That is the Bible. You go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you will see that. Hebrews chapter 11 says every single time that somebody is rewarded, it says at the very beginning of that verse, two words, by faith. faith. If you're not by faith, then you're not going to be rewarded. That is the clear lesson of scripture. So I'm starting to get hot under the collar because of this this poor teaching that has infected the church where people believe that they can actually lose something that God, God has granted. And that means that God is not faithful. He is not 
a covenant keeper. And that's the lesson of Israel. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful, despite their unfaithfulness, even for 3,500 years. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, yeah, how, that's, do you, how do you read it any That is our judgment, and it says, yet you will be saved as by fire. That's right. Okay, that so that's, that's, that's exactly right. So there you go. Okay, so uh, I had to look at the camera and say it again, but I won't hold it over anybody. Um, okay, we are, believe it or not, we're in chapter two. And I, you know, it hurts my heart. It, it just tears me apart that, yeah, mystery. Um, it tears me apart that uh, one of the people in here, this is his favorite book of the Bible, and yet he's leaving for three months and we'll be done long before he gets back. So, you know, I, I just... I feel bad for it, but you know what? Some people just have choices to make, and one of them is traveling. And we were talking before we got started today. I don't ever want to fly again. I never want to leave Sarasota, Florida again. I am happy right here. I'm very happy every Sunday preaching. That's where I find my happiness. And everything else in this world, now I'm not saying I'm not going to travel again. I mean, if something happens and I need to do it, I will. But I have no desire to. I, there's nothing in this world that I want to see, okay? I don't even want to see Sarasota anymore. I just wanted, I mean, going, driving around town, there's nothing here that I say, well, I got to go see that or watch that movie. I'm just happy working on the Word of God and teaching it and on Sunday doing a sermon. That's what I find joy in. So I don't know why I would change that. Um, and uh, But this person is finding happiness and going away for three months and <laughs> leaving me to sit on the uh, teeter-totter all by myself. Yeah. That's tough. It's getting thick. <laughs> okay. In the middle. 2-1. Uh, listen, if I stink, this shirt is making me, don't come close and hug me later. I even put on some patchouli and I can smell myself. It, I'm never going to wear this Here's type of shirt news. again. It, this is good enough right here. Yeah, I'm glad that you're far enough away because it's it's this type of shirt and I didn't realize that it would do this. So you got to have cotton. I know, you ride your bike with these. It's bad. No, it's bad. That's right. But listen, <laughs> right before I left, I took a shower and then I put patchouli on me, and I, I, I'm telling you. So anyway, I apologize. What? In the same old shirt? No, I just put this on. I just pulled it off the shelf before I came out. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Two one. Two one. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. Oh, that was short. For you sure yourselves, <laughs> no, brethren, that are coming to you was not in vain. Okay, the word for here is referring to back to verses 1, 5, and 1, 9. Here's what he said there. Um, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And then in verse 1, 9, it says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned from God, from idols I, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then it says here, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So the things he talked about obviously were productive. So in both of those verses, Paul spoke of himself and those with him and the results that came about because of their ministry. Now, to confirm what he has spoken and as a lead in to his comments of verses 2, 2 through 12, he will give his words of this verse. His note of confirmation comes from the words, for you yourselves know. There was nothing hidden in their coming, 
and the believers at Thessalonica saw everything that occurred as well as all that resulted from it. And because of this, they were fully aware of what Paul is referring to. Next, he says, brethren. In more modern translations, the masculine is being dropped for political correctness, but that is a silly way of translating scripture. The masculine is used in the Greek just as it is in English when speaking of the whole. There's no reason to say brothers and sisters except to change the Bible for political correctness. There's no other reason that they need to do this, and yet one translation after another has done this over the past. Yeah, the, the um, NASB is, has done it. The um, uh, NIV. NIV has done it. it. Just they keep doing it. These, these people just want to be the ones to sell more Bibles because I have to tell you, there is so much money to be made in Bible translation. Okay, there's a lot of money to be made. You have a committee, you start selling Bibles. If you sell a million Bibles and they're $15 each and you pay $2 to have it printed, you do the math. And then when you have the King James Version, a highly flawed translation of the Bible, and you get no royalties at all that you have to pay to anybody, it's domain copyright free and public domain. And because of that, it costs you, most of the King James versions that are printed are not really great quality. They're that paperback and they sell them for $5 each and they cost 82 cents to print. Now you're making, if you sell 3 million of them a year, which is not unreasonable, you're making a lot of money with no overhead to speak of at all. You just have some guy in China, you call him and say, I need you to print off another million Bibles and send them to me. There's a little shipping cost, there's a little printing cost, and then you start selling these Bibles, saying it's the only infallible translation, and if you buy any, use anything else, you're gonna go to heck, and you've just made $6 million a year for doing nothing. For doing, literally, you didn't have to do any translating or anything else. I don't see it in my NASB. Yes, you don't, but there are, if you go online, they have, um, to go to Bible Hub and look at, they have NASB 95, NASB whatever, NASB, they have four or five NASB translations, and one of them has brothers and sisters in their translation. So it's, it's totally unnecessary, and I know I shouldn't keep beating this over people's heads, but it's maddening to me that that is why they changed the, the, or do a new translation. That's why they say the 95 and before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing, 2004 with the uh, NIV. You know, and, and, you know, like I said, if you're first time translating and you want to translate it that way, that's one thing. But if you have a translation that's been out for 50 years and you're making a new version simply for that, that tells you that they have gone politically correct. Well, yeah, that's what that the tells The next you. version, 2023, I'm, I'm sure it's going to come out one day. It's going to be. LGBTQI. I, I, brother, absolutely. Sisters, Zer, Z, Zem, you yeah. got it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, what stops at the, the same progression of the, there's, there's no stopping it. Once the ball go, you're right. There's no stopping it. So uh, the masculine speaks of the whole congregation. If there is one male in the congregation, then it says brothers. If they're all other females, okay? And if it's only females, then of course it would say to the sisters at. Okay, that's just the way that the languages work. That's the way English worked up until Obama became president, okay? And now everything is thrown upside down because these are communists that have an agenda to destroy the, the religious foundational principles of our nation. And how do you do it? You attack the word of God right at its source. That's where you begin. So uh, uh, they are, if only females, here it is, are present, or if females are only being spoken to, then the words will be so addressed. He then finishes the verse with, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
Charles Ellicott notes that the words not in vain draw a bit too much attention to the result of their, their coming. Rather, it should be translated not vain. It then appropriately gives the sense of not purposeless. Their coming was not powerless, but rather it was effectual and bearing fruit as was hoped for by any missionary who has the desire and the intent of obtaining converts. So instead of not in vain, he says use not vain. Okay, I don't know if uh, you guys saw, it was I think three days ago, um, we had a uh, Acts commentary that came out. And the day before it came out, Mike always checks them one last time because he finds these little commas and stuff that you need to put a comma there or whatever. And he said, in the translation, the uh, Young's Literal Translation, Smith's Literal Translation, and a couple of Catholic Bibles actually got the translation right. And the rest of them, almost every single translation, did not get it right. And it's a very short, succinct uh, uh, verse in there. But the difference, when you have it translated properly, theologically makes all the difference in the world. I can't remember. Let me see if I can find the verse and if I can. Day before yesterday? Okay, see, I don't remember these things, and I don't know what was posted yesterday either, so, um, or today. I just don't, you know, I'm worried about the one I'm typing today, not the one that is posted today. So, um, it's in Acts 15, and it was, um, it, it's so subtle that Mike, who is a very, very smart guy, he is incredibly smart, he said I had to stop and read it three times to understand what you were saying. And he said, I can't believe the difference. What a difference. And that was the same thing when I'm reading it. And I'm saying, that's not right. That's not what the Greek says. 13. Uh, let me read it. Acts 15, 13. <laughs> Maybe it was. It says, um, no, it wasn't. Am I in 15? Yeah, I'm in 15. Uh, 13. Uh, um, taken out of them. Uh, I think it's 14. I think it's Simon has declared how God, yes, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Okay, and the way it reads, I'm going to read you the difference between that and let me, that's 1514. Is that what I just said? Yep. Okay, whoops, I don't want that. I want to go here and we're going to go here and then I got to go to Bible Gateway. I don't have that open right now. And I, this is why it's so important to not get stuck on Bible Hub, not Bible Gateway. Yes, I will. Acts 15. 14. I'm going to read you the difference and listen to how small of a difference it is. I'm going to go down to the bottom because that one will be, um, uh, uh, okay. Simeon has reported how God first visited the nations to take out of them a people for his name. That's the World English Bible. Young says Simeon did declare how at first God did look after to take out of the nations a people for his name. Is that what I'm looking for? Um, <coughs> I, I'm not going to use his because he uses the word nations. And so um, let me go to um, additional translations and we'll go down here. Um, okay. Um, this is kind of a paraphrase, but it's the correct way of translating it. The Catholic public domain version. Simon has explained in what manner God first visited so as to take from I don't think that's the verse I want, okay? But no, no, it is, because I'm looking at the... Oh, okay, good, okay. Okay, so let me read you that again then. This is the verse I wanted, and I, I was... Uh, where was I? Catholic public domain version. Simon has explained in what manner God first visited, so as to take from the Gentiles a people to his name. Now, if you go to, for example, the uh, New King James Version, 
wherever that is. Let's see here. I can't find it. Uh, American New King James Version. Some, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. It's so close that you almost don't understand the difference. Let me read it one more time, and then you can go home and read that commentary, and it's going to take you three reads through before you really get what's the problem with it. Uh, New King James Version, which goes along with the King James, by the way. Simon has declared how God, at the first, visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And this one says, Simon has explained in what manner God first visited. It's not visiting the Gentiles. God has visited so as to take a from the Gentiles a people to his name. It's it, it doesn't seem to make any difference, but if you read it and think on what he's saying, it makes a great bit of difference. So go back and read that commentary. It's Acts um, 13, 14, and you'll see. No, 15. Um, uh, 15, 15 what, okay, no. 15, 14. 15, 14, what did I say? 13. Oh, okay, I see. I said 13, 14. I got the 14 right. That was, okay. It's good. Acts 15, verse 14. And you'll see why it's so important to pay attention when you're reading the Bible and to read different versions of the Bible and think about what you are being told. Okay, now, having said that, I was talking to somebody today. This, this deals exactly with what we're talking about with Bible translations. I was talking to somebody today, and this individual told me that somebody that many of us know uh, attended a church in Sarasota, and the church was filled with very conservative people. Now, I'm not saying conservative Christian. I'm just saying they're conservative, and so they have strong values, okay? And the church, I don't know if it was change in leadership. I'm not sure what the reason was, but there was uh, something in the leadership that changed, whether it was a change of leadership or thinking of the leadership. I don't know which. Okay, but there was this change in direction, and the church has gone woke. Okay, now, why did that happen? Why did that happen? It's because the people in the church don't know their Bible. That's why that happened. Because if the people in the church knew the Bible and held to this instead of what a pastor was saying, they would have gotten up and they would have left. Or they would have contacted the pastor first and said, what you're teaching is inappropriate and if you don't stop this, we are going to get up and leave. Well, either way, however you want to handle that, the people in their accept the word of the pastor as gospel. And that I, that's why I say weak. I say it every single Bible study and twice on Sunday. What do I say? Check Read your stuff. Bible. Check what I say. Because if I ever start going off on a tangent and you don't know this word already, you're going to believe me. You are responsible for your theology. I'm more responsible for your theology, James 3.1. Go read that. But you are responsible for what you accept. And that church went down the tubes. And it happened at a church that I was at where I was ordained. Same type of thing happened. The entire church ended up leaving. And the ones that stayed behind, I don't know what they thought, but I mean, the guy was not a sound teacher. He was not a sound leader. And so this is what happens. But if people know their Bible, if they are willing to check what is being said, if they are willing to apply the word to their lives, that would not happen to them. It may still happen to the church because there's people in there that are not willing to do that. But I would ask you, 
I would ask you, if nothing else, is to when you hear this study, to go home and check what you're told. And not to just believe what the pastor says, because uh, Jim was talking about a disagreement with somebody on, I guess it was Facebook or something, uh, recently. And it was going nowhere, because the guy's got something in his head, and he's not willing to check out the, the issue. Okay, that's a real problem. So I would beg you, not just say it, I would beg you to never take my word on anything I say. I'm here to teach and that's what I'm doing, but you need to check what is going on. I also told this individual I was talking to that, you know, I've got people that will email me and they'll question everything I say. And I love that, and not, not in a negative way. They just, you know, I, I, I'm in a church that says this and you say this and can you show me, can you support that? Yes. I. I love doing that because that person really wants to know the truth and they're checking it out. They're reading, they're checking things. You know, I'll give an example of uh, my friend sitting over there, Mr. Longlegs. The very first sermon I ever typed, I, I'm sorry, the very first sermon I ever gave when he attended, he walked up to me afterward and he got right in my face. I mean, he, he was as direct as he could. What did you mean by that? Why did you, didn't you? He was right in my face. Why did you say what you said? And I said, because that's what the Word of God says. And ever since then, we've been studying the Word together almost every day of our lives in one small way or in a big way. But that is what people need to do because if they're not willing to do that and instead just simply accept what I said that day, I could have been as far off the mark as possible. So I'm glad that people will do that. I don't like when people get belligerent, but I do like when people say, can you tell me why what you said is correct and what this pastor said is incorrect? Doesn't bother me a bit. Sometimes it may be a couple days before I can answer, depending on what day of the week it is, but that makes me very happy that people, listen, the nation that we're in right now is in the state we're in right now because we have left this book behind. We have left sound thinking from this book behind, okay? And that's you know, that's fine. I mean, that's the way that it was meant to be, obviously, is that America is going to be nothing in the end times so that the end times can actually come about as the Bible prophesied. But it's sad. It's sad to think how many people have just gone down with their denominations. They've gone down with their churches. So please read your Bible. Okay, um, as noted, Paul will spend the next verses explaining to them, the Thessalonians, the conduct that he and his associates dis demonstrated among them, thus setting themselves as examples to be emulated. Okay, life application. When one wants to obtain certain conduct from others, it can be with a heavy hand, as a bully, or it can be as one who sets an example for others to follow. Paul chose the latter when he came among a new group of people. He explained the gospel and he lived out how one converted by the gospel should act. Rather than dictating to others what they should do, we should follow Paul's lead and act in accord with being a true saint in a gentle manner and caring for those we minister to. But unlike Paul, Paul was caring. He uh, lived out what he was saying, but he was also an apostle. And so what he was doing was also establishing something that we now have. He was establishing the word of God. He was writing to these people. It's the only instruction that was available at the time because all you had was the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament. And so now we have the New Testament. And if we take it in the proper context, and I understand that is a big, big thing. 
because people will say, well, you're taking that out of context. And the other person is saying, well, no, you're taking it out of context. So it really has to be determined what is the context. And in order to do that, you have to ask questions. You can't just say, well, you're taking that out of context. Jesus said that. And so when Jesus was speaking through his whole ministry to who? In the, in the, the Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels. John is different. There's a reason for it. But that's right. In the, in the synoptic Gospels, Jesus was speaking to Israel under the law. That was the standard by which he was speaking to the people. Okay, so if you take what he is saying to those people and you say, but Jesus said, it doesn't matter because you've taken the context out of the issue. What Jesus said matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but it matters in the context in which it is given. He hasn't yet fulfilled the law. Until he fulfills the law, what he says cannot apply to what is coming after his crucifixion and burial and resurrection. So even context, which people argue you're taking that out of context, has to be debated until somebody says, you know, I was wrong. I've been taking this out of context. But if you say that Jesus said, and you're relaying something that belongs to a different context, you have formed a pretext. You have formed a lie in your theology, which you are now perpetuating to the people you're training. So you have to be very careful about that. But at the same time, when you're teaching people, it, unless they're belligerent with you, you know, if they do that to me, then I'm just going to be right back to them. Well, you know, just, ah. I, but if somebody is going to be at least, you know, I don't understand this, and you be gentle with them. That's what you need to do. Uh, it's very hard to, I know the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. It's very hard to do that. I got to tell you what, when somebody is being a belligerent and purposefully or manipulating things on purpose, it's really hard to overcome that. I don't know if anybody here has that problem, but I do. When somebody is being belligerent, it's very hard to deal with a person like that to me. Um, can we help you, ma'am? I, I know, you don't even have to tell me. It's, listen, she's 34 minutes late. You want to know why? I guarantee this. You're leaving the key right now, and if you don't leave the key 50 minutes early, which is normally a three-minute drive to get off the island. I, yesterday, I was leaving. I said, it started to rain. I had to pick up a pallet of paver tiles. I had to pick up a whole pallet of them. And I said, it just started to rain. The, the, remember, it got real gray in the clouds. I said, perfect time. Nobody's going to be on the road. I said, I'm going to be downtown in minutes. It took me 25 minutes just to get off the island when it's raining. I'm like, what are people doing? Well, they're not going to the beach. So anyway, I got all the way. It took me two and a half hours to do what normally would have taken about 40 minutes to do. So, and plus, I made the biggest mistake in the world, which I think I told you. I, did I tell you guys? I did. I said, you know, I'm hungry and it's convenient. There's no line. I'm just going to pull in. And I got McDonald's. Charlie, you need an amphibious car. You know? Yeah, amphibious <laughs> car. Just go right across the bay. That's right. Well, I got to tell you what. I got McDonald's. And when I had to unload that pallet, I almost didn't make it. Never eat McDonald's before you got to unload a pallet of brick. Okay, don't do it. I, bad, bad mistake. Okay, two-two. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Okay, this one is the same thing, but completely different sure. worded. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. 
So they used just a completely different set of words to come to basically the same thought. Paul had just said that his arrival, along with his, with his associates, was not in vain. Now building on that, he says, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know. I know that's a lot to analyze, but anyway, uh, what this is saying is that such treatment would have caused most people to just give up. The spiteful treatment at Philippi that he is referring to is recorded in Acts 16, 6 through 40. It included a public beating and imprisonment. After this, they went along with their mission route, arriving at Thessalonica. This is recorded in Acts 17, 1 through 10. Despite this truly shameful treatment at Philippi, these men were not deterred in continuing on with their missionary work. Unbelievable. If you're, I won't read the whole thing, but we'll go there really quickly. It's Acts 16. I said it's 6 through 40. We won't read it all, but I'll just give you some highlights that happened to them while they were there. Okay, and the thing is, a little bit of this is probably a self-inflicted wound, being Paul. Uh, and I'll explain that in a minute. But uh, they'd gone to Phrygia, Galatia. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit says uh, he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here. So they went over there. They sailed off and went over there to Macedonia. And let's see here. It goes down. It happened when uh, we went to prayer. A certain slave girl possessed with the Spirit um, with, with, um, of divination met us who brought her master's much profit. She kept saying, you know, she's, I'm just paraphrasing all of this. These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And she kept doing it. She followed him along and she's just like harassing him. So finally, Paul calls this demon spirit out of her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, okay? All of a sudden, the, the girl's parents don't have their prophet coming in from her. And so they're going to take him to the, the magistrate. And uh, uh, so they, you know, th these men are uh, Jews. They're exceedingly troubling our city, blah, blah, blah. And then here's what it says. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them kept, to keep them securely. Okay, why was that a self-inflicted wound? Can anybody tell me? The people... He did not have to be beaten. He's a Roman citizen, and he could have appealed to it like he does elsewhere, okay? And he didn't. So he probably thought, I'm going to go through with this for whatever reason he was thinking, and plus we got a great story and a conversion out of it. But they treated him shamefully, all right? And then we know that this is very well said, you guys. Uh, the, the, we know that this is um, uh, a self-inflicted wound because it says, so the keeper of the prison, this is down in verse 36, reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Here it is. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out of here. So now he's really lording it over them. But, and the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. So they did not know. If they had known and he had said, we're Romans, they would not have beaten him. Okay, so it was kind of a self-inflicted wound. You can get that from the story. But Paul learned his lesson because the next time he appeals to Rome. But at the same time, the way he was beaten was with rods, which would have been really painful. I don't know if you've ever had like a reed and somebody hit you, it bends. And when it hits you, it slaps and it really hurts. It can tear your skin as well. But it was not what the Romans were going to do to Paul in Jerusalem, which was to scourge him. 
and that would have been life-threatening, okay? That's what they did to Christ, okay? So there is a difference, but Paul still could have appealed to his Roman citizenship, and he did not. So, yes? Well, if you make the claim and you're lying, then there's a penalty, probably death. But I don't, so he agrees with that. Um, so that is probably the, the penalty. So somebody wouldn't just flippantly do it. But they probably carried around some type of stone or some type of signi, uh, you know, insignia or something that said, this is my Roman citizenship. They had a way of, va approve, of validating it. I don't know what it was. But nobody in their right mind in a position like that, because they've got all the witnesses, Nobody would claim otherwise unless they wanted to be, you know, uh, strung up and hung for this man is not a Roman who claimed to be a Roman, right? Okay, um, so that's that's the situation, but I don't know the details, and I'll bet you there's probably commentaries out there that do give that information, but I haven't personally read it. I don't know how, you know, when Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship, the guy came up and he said, are you a Roman citizen? This is when he's in Jerusalem about to be beaten, and he says, yes, and he says, well, I'm a Roman citizen. I had to pay a lot of money for it. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen, which means that his whole life he served, he didn't have to buy it or anything like that. So it was, it was something that he could have appealed to, and he didn't. But anyway, that's kind of off the, the point. But um, then, uh, as it says, after they, that happened, they left Philippi. They went in Acts 17, 1 through 10. Despite this, they went to Thessalonica, and they were not deterred still going on ahead in their mission trip, okay? And in Acts 17 is where Paul gets to speak at... Yeah, he knows, the Areopagus. He got to speak where all of the famous, you know, Athenians would meet together and, and uh, state their cases. And so that's a real wonderful set of verses in Acts 17. It's just marvelous. We'll be there in just another month and a half or so. And... Um, uh, so, because uh, we're in Acts 15, yeah, so it'll be another month and a half, maybe two months, and we'll be in Acts 17, and it is, there is so much wisdom in Acts 17, just wonderful. Anyway, um, uh, the words, as you know, let me read it again, because we kind of got uh, diverted a little bit, uh, we're in verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict, that's Acts 17. Okay, so the words, as you know, are written as much for us as they are for those at Thessalonica. If what he said wasn't true, then any person who knew it could have, knew that it wasn't true, could have simply said as much. And that's the thing that we need to remember about the New Testament. People are always trying to tear it apart and saying, well, that probably wasn't written by Paul. That probably never happened. And Paul is just saying, this is a self-validating word because this is written to the people that were involved in the words that he's writing. When he writes to Thessalonica, he's saying, well, this happened as you know, and if it didn't happen as they know, they would have said, that is not true. And yet we have no document anywhere to invalidate any part of the word of the New Testament. It is true, it is reliable, and this is self-validating because of that premise or that word, okay? So the words, as you know, are written as much for us as they are for them. History bears out that the account occurred, and those at uh, occurred. Uh, where am I? Yes, and those at Thessalonica were fully aware of it. There was nobody that came forward and wrote their own little letter and said the words that Paul said in the Bible are not true. Okay, um, and the same thing is true with Paul's words about those who witnessed the resurrection of Christ. 
He said that uh, first, you know, uh, I think he said first Peter and then the apostles and then I who was uh, born out of due season and 500 who witnessed this. Some have slept, but many are still alive. That's Charlie Gare paraphrase, but you get the point. Nobody ever refuted that in writing that we have as a document saying that did not occur. And any one of the people that was spoken to by or about by Paul could have said, well, it didn't happen that way. And we have no such document that exists. So the New Testament is the most reliable witness of antiquity by far. We've got documents, uh, you know, texts that go all the way back to the first century, okay? The John Ryland's papyrus goes back to like 107 AD or something, okay? That's within the lifetime of the person who wrote it, okay? One lifetime of the person who wrote it. And then that was written from something that corresponds to the Bible we have. So it wasn't the original, it was found elsewhere. I think it was found in Egypt, wherever it was found, it was written from another document. So we know that it predates that, where it goes back to. It's not the original, in other words. It had to have come from another document. And so we have a sure word. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible is not reliable, at least as a historical witness. They can challenge the theology. They can say that, you know, whatever they want. But as a historical witness of what occurred, just as what Paul is saying, as you know, it is reliable. Because if it wasn't, we would know. All right, so um, history bears out the account that occurred and those at Thessalonica were fully aware of it. In other words, they knew what had occurred in Philippi and it only more poignantly demonstrated the high caliber of Paul and his associates. They had no idea what type of reception they would receive as they proceeded and yet they boldly continued on where no Christian missionary had gone before. A little Star Trek there for you. Okay. Um, Let's see here. Let me put a note here. Okay. While you're waiting, yes. they did have certificates. They what? They had certificates. It was certificates. They did have them. It was okay. birth and then there was uh, citizenship. And they carried them with them or did they? Okay, probably that's yeah. the case. And did you just check that or? Okay, he just checked on his. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, now, that could be a complete lie. What, what is that device for? I've never seen one of those. That? It's for holding water while you <laughs> drink. No, I'm talking about the little box with pictures on it. Uh, that's something I I had right. somebody try to a smaller version of that yeah yeah well yeah but this this had to be bought by somebody forced me into buying this for the church so this is used for the church I can tell you that the same person that forced me to buy this tried to weasel me into getting my own cell phone today I won't say how but I said I I, I messaged back and I said yeah I don't know think you know exactly what you're doing do you I, uh, you're, okay, so, Charter. yes. Second uh, Peter. Second Peter. Uh, One nineteen. Oh yes. Prophetic word made more. More sure. That's right. To which you do well to pay attention to the lamp shining in a dark place. Absolutely, okay. the witness of Christ. It's more sure than the prophetic word of the Old Testament because it's fulfilled and everything about it is validatable. Verifiable, I guess is the word. Anyway, it, we have a more sure word. Absolutely right. That's 2 Peter what? 2 Peter 1.19. 2 Peter 1.19. Okay, there you go. The prophetic word, more sure. Okay, so with their fortitude evident, Paul and, um, who was it, Silas, uh, he says that they were bold in our God 
to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. With a full trust in God that they were meant to continue the mission trip through Macedonia, they proceeded onward. Now remember, I, I kind of skipped over it, but they were in, they wanted to go towards Asia, not the Asia we think of today, but Asia Minor, or anyway, they wanted to go that way, and it said the Holy Spirit prevented us. But he had a vision, a man in Macedonia beckoning them to come to him. And so they're following the, the lead of the Spirit. He knew that it was something that he said, we're being told to go this direction, and off they went, okay? So, with full trust in God that they were meant to continue the mission trip through Macedonia, they proceeded onward. Paul knew this to be true. Oh, I'll read it to you, Acts 16, 9, and 10. This is the one I kind of went over, and then I told myself to read it. So, Acts 16, all right, give me just one second here, 13, 14, 15, 16, 9, and 10. It says, yeah, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, now I know many, many people claim that there are uh, visions like that today, and there are people calling people you need to come to um, the jungles of South America, and there's going to be somebody that will tell you how to be saved. Yeah. I don't believe it. Okay, so don't send me those videos. That's fine. If you believe that, that's fine. But uh, I, I often get sent things like that. And listen, we have the Word of God. The purpose of the Word of God is to do exactly what is recorded there. It says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Jesus told us to go out and do these things. I don't see any need on this planet for Jesus or anybody else to come into somebody's head and say, okay, but that's fine. If the you, point if, you made this morning in the reading was that if there was true, then this is meaningless. Because oh, absolutely. What's the like, point of even having the Bible? It's not. Yeah. I'm waiting for the next thing. I'm oh. waiting for the next thing. It, it, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of the opposite, but the same thing as Calvinism that says that you're regenerated in order to believe. Then why do we need to even tell people about Jesus? No. God's will can't be thwarted, and so he's going to do it, and we don't need to go out and do our job. So both sides of that same coin uh, but yeah, anyway, I forgot I said that, but thank you. Okay, the Lord would not prompt them to go on such a mission if he were not going to be with them. Okay, the spiteful treatment at Philippi turned out to be exactly what was needed anyway. It bolstered confidence of those there who believed. It continued to confirm the legal proclamation of the gospel, and it brought salvation to the jailer who was given charge over Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, okay, which is... Uh, you know, that's one of the things that's in there is the record of that jailer, how they were in the jail singing at night, happily singing to the Lord. There was an earthquake. The chains were broke free. If the prisoner gets away, the jailer's life is forfeit. It's the prisoner for the jailer. That's the way it worked back then. And so he drew out his sword. He's about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't do it. We're here. Come on in. Join us in the party. Sing with us. So that's not what happened, okay? Uh, anyway, so he, uh, they, they, the jailer took him to his house, put, you know, uh, healing on his wounds, bandages, and uh, then the whole family was converted, okay? So that was one thing that came out of it. So Paul's beating, despite kind of being self-inflicted, turned out to be for good, okay? And, you know, for all we know, I, I'm just saying that he didn't make up an appeal, which he could have. It may have been that the Lord said, don't say anything. Paul could have just said, you know, we're supposed to take this beating. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it does, it's not recorded there. But for some reason, he did not appeal to his Roman citizenship, which he could have. Anyway, um, so here we had the salvation of the jailer, 
We had all of the exciting events in scripture which give us all kinds of theology which we'll be doing in the next 30 days or next 45 days and it's just a great story. Okay, um, uh, Daniel this morning on his UK broadcast, I don't know if he's talking about, he said he had his children start it. Usually he just starts out with you know his commentary, but today he had the children say, our 600th commentary, little, you know, uh, celebration. I don't know if that's 600 of all of the commentaries he's done or 600 from the book of Acts. At first I thought it must be the book of Acts, but uh, I don't know how many verses we've done in Acts right now. Either way, 600 is a whole lot of sitting in front of a microphone in a closet <laughs> to record, you know, commentary. So my hat is off to him and his children who participate in that. They do such a good job. Okay, so um, rather than be being negatively affected and weakened by what occurred, meaning the beating and all of those other things, Paul and those with him understood that these things were divinely orchestrated. Thus, they were further emboldened. This was, despite, as Paul says, much conflict. The Greek word translated as conflict is, and you'll probably hear a word in there that you uh, can recognize in modern English, agony. Okay, as you can see, it is where modern word agony. agony is derived. It indicates a contest or a struggle. In secular Greek, which his audience would have been thinking of, it speaks of a gathering to the Greek games, such as the Olympiads. And these people put themselves through agony. They went through this constant striving and working their own bodies to the point where they were in a state of exhaustion just to be well-trained for these Olympics, Olympiads. And then what they would do is they would give everything they could because they got a wreath at the end of it. And then Paul uses that as an example. These people are working for a wreath that perishes. Strive for the wreath that will never perish. Oh, it's so wonderful. Anyway, Paul uses a lot of that type of terminology in his thinking. All right, you can't disassociate Paul's thoughts from Greek thought because he was raised in a Greek environment, which is exactly what was needed. He certainly spoke Greek, he spoke Latin. It doesn't say that, but he certainly did because he was a Roman citizen. He would have spoken all of that, his native dialect. He would have spoken Aramaic and Hebrew. He was very, very well-trained, okay? Once again, doesn't say all those things, but you can know that. You can uh, consider it because of who he was. And his thinking wasn't just as a Jew, it was as a Greek Jew that was raised in the dispersion and then was trained in uh, the Hebrew scriptures under Gamaliel. So he was a guy that was perfectly suited for carrying the gospel message. And when we get into Acts chapter 17, I just love it because he cites Greek philosophers. Okay, and they're speaking about Zeus. So those people are hearing his words and he's saying, I want to tell you about the God that actually exists when you know he uses their words to point them to the Lord. And so he, he was brilliant in what he did. So you can't separate Paul from the Greek thoughts that are going on in Scripture. Yes? About 466 verses in Acts up to 15. Okay, 466. Okay, okay. so then he must have been speaking of all of his commentaries that he's done because he's done some Genesis commentaries and he's done other commentaries. Either way, 600 is a lot. That's two years of sitting in a closet for 15, 20 minutes a day. And, and so that's very good. But we're in 400. Now the commentary itself is about 11 hundred pages right now, maybe 1,200 pages. So it's pretty long. By the time it's done, it's just going to be this giant book. But anyway, and hopefully it won't get done. We'll 
go out of here. Wouldn't that be great? Okay, I, I'm so excited about the Lord coming for us, but his timing. Anyway, we'll just keep waiting. Um, it is a great struggle, the agony, as if they were in a battle or a wrestling match against the spiritual foes of the church, yeah. fighting for the precious saints that they were called to minister to. And yet, despite this struggle, they continued on emboldened by God. They trusted in the Lord. They knew that he had a plan for them, and they were willing to go to all kinds of extremes to fulfill the, the calling that was laid upon them. Okay, life application. The book is written, the future is set, and we have an absolute surety that Christ is in complete control of our destiny. You know, if we can, if we can keep that thought in our minds all the time, when we, you know, I told you about Jackie, she's got pneumonia. If you can just say, I understand that Christ is in control. This stinks right now. Whatever it is, your financial loss, your, your emotional pains, your physical pains, your whatever. If you can just say, I understand that Christ has a plan for me. And it's hard, especially when you're going through difficult times. But when you say that, as long as you truly believe it. I mean, there are people that sit in churches their whole life, and I don't think they truly believe anything. They just go because it's a social club and, you know, whatever. But if you truly can accept that this is the Word of God and that what it says is true, every single thing that we're going through right now is going to come to an end. And when it is replaced, it will be replaced with something so glorious that whatever you're going through will be forgotten. Amen. Forgotten. So try to keep that in your mind. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But I'll read it again. The book is written. The future is set. And we have an absolute surety that Christ is in complete control of our destiny. No matter what happens in this earthly life, no matter what, we are safe and secure in his capable hands. I was reading a news article today. They're targeting people in a new way here in the United States of America. They first targeted you with what they gave three things. They first targeted us with one thing. I think it was uh, COVID. Anyway, three things. And the third one is going to be so personal. There's just going to be no way to get around it. I, 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 I don't want to misquote the article. But I was thinking, while I was sitting there reading this, I was saying, so what? That's what my thought was. So what? If they want to have their little party and they want to persecute people for the rest of their lives like the Stasi did and like the commies did in Russia, and if that's what they want and if that's what makes them happy, big deal. The people that were just as content as they were and more so were the ones that were in the, the gulags that had their faith in Christ, that understood that this was just a temporary thing. They are going to be swept away because of what they're doing. And the people that hold on to Jesus are going to have eternal life. So what? If that's what they want out of this life is to have control for 50 or 60 years and then die, let them have it. That is not something that concerns me. And that's why I was reading this article, getting all people, people all riled up about how bad things are. So what? Okay. As this is so, why would we be timid? In our, and this is what my thought was. I didn't even finish it. And here it's, this is why, why would we be timid in our proclamation of Christ Jesus? They want to shut us up so that we won't proclaim the good news and tell people how to be saved. That's what they want. I will never not do I may find a different avenue to do it, okay, but I am never going to shut up about Jesus Christ, ever. 
that's one thing that we need to make sure that we are willing to do. Even if somebody, you know, I think, I don't know if I ever said this here. I, I know I said it years ago, but um, uh, I, and you hear these stories and you don't know if they're true or not, but the point is well taken nonetheless, even if it isn't true. But um, uh, a group of worshipers in Russia, they're in a church, you know, a little home church or whatever, they're in a church, they're meeting, and in come the Russians. And they got their machine guns. And they said, anybody that will deny Jesus right now, you can leave. And if you don't, you're going to be killed. And they pulled the, the thing on the gun. And some of the people got up and left the church. And then the Russians put down their guns and said, brothers and sisters, we are here to worship with you. Okay? So there you go. Where is your faith? Are you going to let up a lit worry you? Because they can give it to me. I don't care. I really, and I sincerely mean that. They can shoot me because I'm going to be with Jesus all the sooner. You know what? Big deal. Yeah, I mean, and I won't have to go through this place, right? I mean, as great as this is, there's nothing that compares to what is coming. So don't let this world get you down. Don't stop your proclamation of Christ Jesus. Or why should we care about what could happen because of it? Get up, go out, and speak. Jesus, it is all about Jesus. Okay, we got plenty of time. Two, three. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Okay, completely different, but same thought. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Okay, the word for is based upon the words of the previous verse. Paul and his associates were bold in speaking the gospel. It was an exhortation based in the truth of God. The word exhortation, paraklesis, is a personal exhortation that delivers the evidence that stands up in God's court. That's help word studies. Paul knew this. Therefore, the words of the gospel message they proclaimed, having been pronounced because they are God's plan of salvation, did not, Paul's words here, did not come from error or uncleanness. The preposition he uses, ek, gives the sense of from or out. Like when Jesus says, I am going to keep you out of the wrath or the time of trial to come upon the whole earth, the word is ek. He's not going to keep us through it. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to keep you out of it. Hence, anybody? Pre-tribulation rapture. Okay? I'm sorry for people that disagree with that, but that's what the Bible says. I'm going to keep you from the hour. And then, of course, people say, well, the hour of trial is the last three and a half years. That's not what he's speaking about there, okay? He says he's going to do it. And then after verse 4-1, all of a sudden, all of the trial on the earth is coming. And it's not divided. It is divided into two sections. But the whole thing is the trial, all right? Uh, you know, but people, they get something in their head, and they're going to go down with the ship, regardless of what the Bible actually says. Okay, so the word is out, out of, or from. If they are of God, then there could be nothing of error in them, nor could there be anything profane in them. The word for error that Paul uses gives the sense of deception, which causes one to wander into sin. Obviously, if God's plan is to bring man out of the bondage of sin, then his message will be completely free of such error. And it's just simple and logical. Okay, God has a plan to get you out of the state of sin. Therefore, there's not going to be anything in the plan, and I'm not talking about the people that are exercising the plan. I'm talking about the plan itself that will induce people to do what he's trying to get you out of. 
that's not going to happen. The Bible will not do that. Okay, now, of course, there are people that fall into sin when they're missionaries. There are people that fall into sin when they're pastors. There are people that fall into sin when they're teachers. That's not what this is speaking of. It's speaking about the message. Obviously, if God's plan is to bring man out of the bondage of sin, then his message, which the apostles were carrying, will be completely free of such error. Very logical. The second word translated as uncleanness gives the sense of ritual impurity. This can come about in a host of ways under the law of Moses. It can be leprosy and open infection, childbirth, touching a corpse, and so forth. All of these things made you impure for a certain amount of time. It might be a week. It might be until the thing is healed. It might be, you know, until evening, whatever. And they always had certain rituals that they had to go through in order to be considered clean. Even if the leprosy is gone, they still have to go through the ritual in order for it to be considered done. The priest has to examine it. He has to say yes, and then they do all of these rituals. Guess what? Every single one of those rituals points to. Every one of them. Jesus. Jesus. Every single one of them. In one way or another, if you study Leviticus, somebody on Sunday, I won't give her name, but Andy said, um, I'm, so, I'm going through Leviticus right now, and I'm so glad for these notes. Listen, Leviticus is the most wonderful book. It is all about what Christ is going to do to cleanse us, okay? So anyway, I was so thankful. I've thought of that at least four times this week. It was so nice of her to say that because, you know, we're done with Leviticus. As far as I'm concerned, it's done, but people are still going back to it and saying, I'm benefiting from this, and I'm so happy about that. But it all points to Jesus. And what did Jesus tell them Like, he healed a leper. What did he tell that leper to do? That's right. Go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses requires. Okay? That's Charlie Gare paraphrase. That's not exactly the words that Jesus used, but that's what he said. Why would he do that? Because it's the law. Right? It's the law. Once again, if something is being said in the book of Matthew, Mark, or Luke... It is to the Jewish people. It is about the law of Moses. That is, look at that handsome young man. Wow. And look, you got your mom's dinner. What a good boy. What is that? Okay. Oh, thank you. You know, and I thought about it. You have the same blower that I do, don't you? Yeah. Okay, so you're going to need to keep that, but let me borrow it and I'll give it back to you because that is what you replaced. No, don't leave it there. Bring it here because I, I, I don't want to forget it. If you put it somewhere, I'm going to forget it. But I need that. I'm... Uh, now he's, you're being seen by millions of people right now, maybe a billion. Okay, I love you. Have a great night. Okay, he, he just didn't want me to do that. But this is, I need this to replace the spark plug on my blower. Yeah, the, the, uh, oh, there you are, the red one, right? The, you have to have a short one. You can't use a longer one, and you can't get any other tool in there. And so this, I wonder, what did I do with this? And then I realized I gave it to my boy. So I got to give it back to him because you do change your spark plugs, don't you? Okay, <laughs> somebody's in trouble. All right, love you. Have a night. And say hi to Faith. Oh, and tell Faith that a couple people visited her grandmother, okay? Oh, oh, good. Oh, wasn't that nice? Okay, love you. All right, um, so um, uh, yeah, he told them, and the point I was making before we were rudely interrupted by my son, no, um, uh, is that he told them to do those things because... It was the law to do it. And the point I was making is that 
he never deviated from the law of Moses. So when he's speaking to people, and this is where people need to get the context of the Synoptic Gospels right, Jesus is not speaking to us. He may be referring to us in some sense, which has to be derived from whatever he's saying at the time. But what he is saying is instruction for Israel under the law. And so if you take that and you say, well, look, Jesus said this, you are going. It's not that you may. You are going to get a contradiction between what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying. And then, of course, people piously fall back on, who are you going to believe, Jesus or Paul? Listen, the Bible is inspired by by God, the Holy Spirit, okay? Jesus was filled with the... Holy Spirit. Paul was under inspiration of the... Holy Spirit. Peter confirms all of this in his writings as well as Paul. Okay, you are not pitting Paul against Jesus. You are pitting the law against grace, the final completed work of Jesus Christ, and that is what Paul is explaining. You can't get to the grace unless you go through the law first. And so why was Jesus so adamant to have him go do the sacrifices? Because it was the law. It and was he was he was fulfilling the law. Absolutely. He would not violate the law in order for, you know, he wouldn't do an end around. And so that's why he did these things. Okay? This is the point of what we're looking at. And so you have to keep proper context when you do these things. Anyway, leprosy, open infection, childbirth, touching a corpse. You know, I won't get into any others, but there's about a billion of them. They're, and every one of them points to Jesus in one way or another. Each of these was something described in the book of Leviticus. If such uncleanness required a sin offering when it was over, then obviously it speaks of the general sin nature of man evidenced in such uncleanness. Okay? That's obvious. Again, the gospel is God's plan to bring man out of sin. And therefore, the gospel is in itself completely free of uncleanness. And it is what makes complete cleansing possible. The gospel. That's it. Not your works, not anything you do after being saved. None of that. The gospel is what brings a person out of the state of sin, and you are no longer under the penalty of sin. That is what the gospel does. And we can't get that right. We cannot get the five-letter word grace right. And so the argument you had, you can lose your salvation, are people that do not understand the simple five-letter word. And when you don't get that, the rest of your life is being spent in an unproductive, unclean state because you're rejecting what Christ has done and you're not living in the fullness of Christ by moving forward. Yes, I sinned, but Christ has cleansed me from that sin. Instead, yes, I sinned and now I've lost my salvation and I've got to, without being told how, get my salvation back because the Bible never addresses loss and return to salvation, ever. Again, the gospel is God's plan to bring man out of sin, and therefore the gospel is in itself completely free of uncleanness, and this is what makes complete cleansing possible. Paul then changes the preposition for his last noun. Instead of ek, meaning out from or from, he uses en. Anybody? En. In. En is in, okay? It means in. Their message did not stem from personal deceit as if they were trying to bait their audience. Here the word is dolos. It gives the sense of using a decoy to snare people through deception in order to exploit them in their naive state. 
Paul is saying that the motives of himself and those with him were pure and without any cunning. Instead, they genuinely presented the gospel from their hearts, knowing that it is the one thing that can remove from them the emotional pain of a fallen life. And not only the emotional pain, but actually the, you know, the state of sin in which we dwell. Okay, And as hard as it may be for you to get this, and I'm talking not just to you, I'm, I'm talking to anybody, as hard as it may be for you to get this, you are sin-free right now in God's eyes. If you struggle like I do with the thoughts of your mind and the stupid things you do and the stupid things that come out of your mouth when you're angry or whatever else, if you struggle with that, then you are just like me, amazed at the grace of God, amazed at it, because you are deemed sinless before God. Doesn't mean you're not going to be judged for your incorrect, moral, immoral actions and whatever, okay? That's not what that means. But it does mean that you stand in a sinless state before God. Because if that was not true, you could never enter into the presence of God. But Christ covers your sin. His blood has atoned for every sin, past, present, and future, that you will continue to do, even if you sit there denying that you do it. Okay, that is what Christ has done. It is the marvel of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is not imputing sin to us. This is the state in which we live. It is wonderful. It is glorious. It is the hope of the believer, if the believer has that hope. And if not, he's trying to work his way to keeping his salvation, which he can never do. And okay. it's not licensed. Yeah, it's not licensed. That's another thing that, you know, the people that say easy believism say the exact same thing. Well, then you're teaching that you can sin. Well, no, I've never taught that. And nobody will ever teach that that handles the word correctly. We're not to do certain things. But the fact is that we are going to do certain, certain things. things. That is all there is to it. And God has already figured that into him, into his plan for your life. You are not being imputed those certain things. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of people who present false gospels and also people present the true gospel, but in deceit. The first he warns against in the most vehement terms, Galatians 1, 6 through 8 comes to mind. We are never to allow a false gospel to be presented without challenging it. And we're uh, today, I won't say any more than just some details, is that I got an email about something that somebody said. And you know, it would be very easy to just ignore it, but I sent it on to the guy and I said, you know, this is something that was addressed and can you explain that? And he did. And he said, that isn't what I hold to. And it, 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 the matter was resolved. And, uh, you know, it, I, I won't give any more than that, but I was challenging a possible false gospel in somebody that has a, a bearing on people's lives that you pro probably know. I'm not here to, you know, embarrass anybody in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, somebody sent me this, and I said, well, I'll question it. And so I sent it off to the person, and he came back, and he explained why this was there, and et cetera, and the matter was resolved. And that's what we have to do. We are never to let a false gospel be presented. And if we think that one is being presented, we need to make sure that it's clarified, okay? We need to challenge it. And we are to have a sound enough knowledge of the real gospel, which is not that complicated, right? It's just not. We're to have a sound enough knowledge of the real gospel to be able to do the ch to do the challenging when necessary, okay? I don't care what the doctrine is. If it's Hebrew roots, reinsertment of the law, 
challenge it. If it's, uh, you know, you well, that's also <laughs> reinserting the law of Seventh-day Adventism and, you know, uh, Saturday worship and all of these things. It just, and, you know, Paul, in more than any other issue, he deals with a lot of issues in his epistles, but more than any other issue, Paul deals with law. He deals with staying away from law observance. Okay, that that's the main thing. But there are all kinds of things that are false gospels. Okay, Jesus isn't God, or, you know, Jesus is God, but he wasn't always God. And, you know, all of these things, they need to be challenged, but you need to be aware enough to know how to challenge it. If you need some uh, things, I got some right under the pulpit there, right on the top shelf under there. I got them. I don't know. They're the red things, the chloroseptic. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, Oh, she's got, she's got the mint. The mint will do. Oh, those are great. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, so we need to be challenging when necessary. For the second category, people that are giving a true gospel, but they're doing it in deceit. And believe me, this is a big one too. There are a lot of people out there that know the gospel, they teach the gospel, and they don't care about the gospel. But it can be profitable, it can be, you can get fame, you can get fortune, whatever. Okay, uh, for the second category, Paul shows very little care, surprisingly. If the true gospel is being proclaimed, even if it is by someone who simply hopes to profit off the message, he knew that God would deal with such a person. He knew it, and so he didn't really bother with it. His words concerning this are found in Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Let me take you there, and we'll go there. Um, Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Ephesians, Philippians, it's so small you have to just kind of get it. Okay, Philippians 1, uh, where is that? 15 through 18. He says, okay, he says, um, Some indeed preach Christ from, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. You could add in deceit, which I'm talking about here. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. Paul didn't really care. If somebody is a shark and he's teaching the right gospel, go ahead. You're the one that has to stand before the Lord. You do whatever you want. As long as you're preaching the right gospel, why should I care at all? Christ is being proclaimed. But when somebody is preaching a false gospel, he never, never kept quiet about that. He was like, this has to be challenged. Really? So yeah. how, how would you reconcile that? I never thought of it before until now you mentioned it. Hmm. If there is a preacher at church and he is living, let's say, I don't know, like uh, yeah, some churches, they have all kinds of uh, scandals and stuff. Yeah. And they take him off the pulpit because of some immoral life or whatever. Right. So, but he is taken out of the pulpit. He can no longer preach the gospel, which he did before. Right. Even though maybe he wasn't in it or. Well, if he was doing something wrong, he had to be disciplined. But, you know, but. So those who Paul's referring to, they're not, I mean, they also sound like they're doing something wrong. Well, if they're doing it out of deceit, he's, I'm sure he's talking about the heart, okay? And, you know, now, obviously, I live in a house that's real expensive. Okay, we've been out there since 1948. When it was bought, nobody wanted to live on that island. There were rattlesnakes. There was no air conditioning. There was red tide and you couldn't get away from because you couldn't close your doors and get air conditioning because if you did, you'd suffocate, right? Okay, I have a real expensive house that I live in. That's just God's grace on my life, okay? But somebody could say, well, he's living in an expensive house, okay? And so we don't know the heart. We have no idea. And that's what he's saying. Somebody could be doing this. Uh, yeah, you see okay. what I'm saying? Okay. okay. 
Um, uh, the guy that I always love to bring up, uh, he's, I don't know if he's even alive because I'm not on Facebook anymore, but Neville Grit. He was the pastor of the uh, tabernacle for years and years. And he's the only guy I know that ever preached through the entire Bible. Okay. And he would sit there with his Parkinson's disease and he'd say, handle the word carefully, Charlie. Handle it carefully. He's the only guy I ever made a New Year's resolution about. I said, I'm going to get to know this guy. The only person I've ever done that. I don't do New Year's resolutions because they're going to get broken. But um, I went and I got to know the guy and finally he was so, I, he got to the point where I just couldn't, I was harming him by coming. And so I stopped visiting him. I let him know that. And uh, But he loved the Word of God, but he lived in a really nice place right out on Sarasota Bay. And I could see somebody saying, well, what's that guy doing out there, right? Beautiful, beautiful. I don't know his background. He might have inherited $5 million from his parents in the UK. I have no idea. That doesn't interest me at all. All I know is that man cared about the Word of God because after he was retired, he still told people, treat the Word of God carefully. Be responsible with this precious Word. To him, it was a sacred treasure that had been entrusted to him, and he wanted everybody else to think the same way. So, so here he's speaking about the matter of the heart. I believe that's, yeah. I, it's just people that are doing it deceitfully. I can't read their hearts. I have no idea what their that motivations are. Yeah, so there you go. It ties into the most, most inter or the most um, uh, abused verse in the Bible, which has to do with love, but it's of money. Oh yeah, love of so, money. And like, you know, okay, money's just a thing. Money is a it's thing. a thing. It's like, you know, how do you use it? What yeah. do you, how'd you get it? And like, you know, but like, you know, it's not a, a thing that is, is bad intrinsically. Yeah, it, it's just a thing. It's what we would say with like technology. Technology is neutral. neutral. Right. It's what you do with it. Money is neutral. Correct. It's what you do with it. You add something. What's, is it, is his name Simon the Magician? Yeah. That is mm -hmm. referred to somewhere. Would he fall into well, you know what? I, I take a stand different than every single person that I read the commentary on. They all said well, he's he's not a safe person. It says he believed, and he uses the exact same word that is used for every single person in the book of Acts who believed. Every one of them, same word. I can't I can't question that. If Luke recorded he believed, unless he said he believed falsely or something, I will never stand against what it says. So the guy didn't understand the right thinking. He was corrected by Peter, and Peter corrected him. I stand against every commentator that I read because they all said, he wasn't saved, blah, blah. I'm not there to judge that guy. I have no idea. All I know is that he believed the same word is used, and he made a mistake, and he was corrected. And then after that, he disappears from the record. That's not my questioning. As far as I'm concerned, when I made my commentary, I said, this man was saved because it says, if you believe the gospel, you will be saved. And it says, he believed. So I, I leave it at that, and I'll, I'll let the Lord worry about that. But no idea beyond that. I, that's all it says about him, and it says he believed. So as far as I'm concerned, Simon is a saved person, and he might be sitting down in a, a little stoop here, and Billy Graham's way up here. I don't know. I have no idea. He might have gone on to be a great person, you know, extra biblical history records some things and you never know if they're correct or not but I know that the Bible says he believed so oh, we got five minutes good um, we can finish this up life application yeah let me circle that now so I know next week is two four two four I know a lot of people that won't be here next week so sad but I gotta tell you I'm envious of two of them and it's not you okay I'm jealous 
that I'm not going to be able to spend time with you, but I'm envious of the other two. And I can't give it because, you know, they're going on a missionary trip and I can't say any more than that. So, but I just am so excited that they're going out from here for missions. You know, if somebody ever wants to go visit Isaac or uh, Silas in Kenya, I'm going to be, I, I don't want to use the word envious in a, like a, you know, this wrong sense, the unbiblical sense, but I, I just wish well for people that do these things. They're carrying a message of Jesus to people, and that just is, that's worth all the gold in the world to me. Just, you know, missionaries are people that, that we need to always keep in our thoughts and always be willing to help and always be willing to care about because they're doing something. You know, it's fine to go on a vacation to, we'll say, uh, Thailand. It's another thing to go into the jungles of Thailand and say, I'm going to tell people about Jesus, okay? completely different reason. Life application. Let us be fully versed on the true gospel. And also let us be ready and willing to defend against any false gospel. The soundness of the gospel message is far more important than trying to determine the heart of the person presenting the message. And once again, I'll say exactly the opposite right now. Never trust your pastor. Never trust your teacher until you have checked what they have said. I'm telling you to do one thing here, do exactly the opposite as well. Don't just believe people, okay? Don't just do that because a, a conservative church here in Sarasota turned away from what is sound thinking because of the leadership. That breaks my heart. When I heard that, I thought, and I, you know, it doesn't matter where it is or who it is, but it just broke my heart to hear that. Literally broke my heart today. Um, uh, the Lord will deal with those whose hearts are not right with him, but we have an obligation to deal with those whose message is not in accord with his word. Be prepared. Know your Bible. If you will do that, if, you, if I die today and you remember that one lesson and apply it to your lives, because if you know your Bible, you will know that you are saved forever. If you know your Bible, you will know that you have a hope beyond this life. If you know your Bible, all of these things that I want for you, if you know your Bible, you will possess those things. And I will think when I'm up with the Lord, I'm so happy that they took that one admonition. No, right there. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Read your Bible. That is what I would ask of you. Heavenly Father, how good it is to be in your presence and to share in your word. It is a word that tells us of Jesus. It's not just a word that is isolated for fancy and for for finding patterns and secret codes. It is a word that is a living and life because it is the word that speaks of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord who is the subject of this word. He is the object of our affections. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is Jesus. Thank you for him Lord God and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay we'll say goodbye to the folks. Take care. I'm going to keep and, the microphone going. Oh, Sergio's going to keep the microphone going, okay? I dropped these, so i got to get those. Let me get this out of the way. All right. And then we're going to go over here, and we're going to push this button. We're going to go to break.